Welcome to Spread Talk with Pam and John, also known as The Calm, Before the Storm. Our purpose is to elevate the conversation and amplify special education resources. Welcome to Spread Talk with Pam and John, also known as The Calm, Before the Storm. Our purpose is to elevate the conversation and amplify special education resources. Well, we are excited to have Texas Can spotlighted, really showcasing some of the awesome work that's going on with the Texas Can Network. I've been on the website recently, and, you know, I love that promotional video you have up front that really kind of sets the tone, I think, of the Texas Can Network and how it's saying, listen, we know more about, about the human brain and about human intelligence and about, you know, possibilities. And, and so we want to make sure we are connecting educators to evidence-based practices and resources and, and, and curriculums and things that are out there. And so I just love that little, just, it's just a snippet almost. It's like a minute and a half or something, but that's a great video. So thank you all for joining us. I don't mean to take over right off. I just am excited about this network and having y'all on today. I love that video too. And it was so much fun. I mean, we just had a brainstorming session where we sat at, sat down and started drawing things out. And um, I love the part where it says we're, ri we're riding on the crest of a wave headed to the shores of equality, belonging, and independence. And you're right, things have changed so that we know a lot more than we ever did. And technology is just skyrocketing. So we now have um, better supports for students and we understand more about uh, the student themselves. So we're built around the premise of presuming competence and everything in research kind of supports that. And we are big pushes towards uh, belonging and inclusion, moving from different and less to equal and capable, from segregated and marginalized to included and valued. And that sums up our whole vision and everything that we do. I'm excited about all the things TA has helped us in putting together and just such quality things and it's amazing and I couldn't be more grateful for the opportunity to do what we do. It, it has been fun. I'm glad you got to see the website. Would you mind both introducing yourselves and kind of giving us a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are working with TexCan and um, so you've given us some great insight into TexCan itself. So tell us a little bit about you, about you, Mr. Wong, and you, uh, Ms. Thompson. <clears throat> Patrick, you want to start? Sure. I, I'm new to Texas. I'm a new Texan. I moved here about a year and a half ago from the great state of Ohio uh, to be in your family. I have a daughter in uh, Dallas and her husband and I have a son living in Austin. So uh, we are privileged to be here. I've been in special education for about 40 years, been a kind of older fellow. Started teaching, of course, about 10 years in the classroom with students with complex needs did some other work and transition. And then in Ohio, we have a state support team, which we um, work through our Ohio Department of Education through providing training and uh, through IEP training, transition, other areas that Ohio had, had their priority. And I'm uh, privileged to work with Lottie and Shannon and her team at ESC3. They have done some great work. So I'm just glad to be here and 
just help, just helping them and assisting them and providing all the creative work that they've developed. Well, uh, likewise, Patrick. For me, this past, I mean, I feel like I have been on it since childhood because I'm pretty old. <laughs> so I have a cousin who now we would say that he's on the autism spectrum, but back then, you know, we didn't know autism. We just knew that he had a pretty severe disability and he was nonverbal. He never attended public school. It was very hard on my aunt, but I always like, I could see that he understood things like you know, and I always remember as a child uh, with my cousin, I wanted to like, I just thought somehow I could break through and help him. And then when I started school, I met another, another first grader actually who had a disability and it was the very beginning of school. So she was in with all the students, but then I guess they uh, realized that she had a disability and she was moved to a life skills classroom. And we remained friends, even though she was in another classroom. And I mean, we're, we're still friends to this day. I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't know I wanted to be a special education teacher, but I've, I've always loved school. So I knew I wanted to be a teacher and um, I had my family first and I started subbing wherever they went to school. And I got a call one morning and they asked me to sub in life skills. And I thought, oh, that must be homemaking. So I went to the class and I wasn't homemaking. <laughs> I never left that class. So I, I, the teacher wasn't coming back and I got my certification in special education and I stayed. And I had some great paras that helped me that first year, like just kind of understand what, what my role was and going to art meetings and all those different kinds of things. And one of the first things I noticed with my students, it was a junior high classroom. And looking at their evaluations, I would see things like, that they were at a 24 month level or 36 month level. And it's like, man, that really doesn't tell me a lot about my students because they could do so much. And I could tell that they understood so much and their sense of humor. It's like, they're catching on to this. They understand this. And so from there, um, I came to the service center. Originally I came as um, the autism specialist. I, my master's is from UNT specializing in autism. At that time, I happened, we had the LID grant here, the Low Incidence Disability Grant. I worked with Mary Scott. And again, man, I couldn't have had a better mentor. That's kind of everything is built from there. And I just feel very, very privileged to be able to do what I do now. And I work with some amazing, wonderful, bright people. And uh, we've seen over the years, some great things with happen for kids when you really kind of do that. Uh, mind shift and and change your vision and believe in the possibilities. Uh, I haven't been disappointed yet, so that's a little bit about me. Just a little bit about that transition from you know that low incidence disabilities network. I, you know that was an established network in Texas prior to the the Texas Complex Access Network, Texas CAN or TX CAN. Will you yeah. talk a little bit about the transition from that net the lid to the the Texas CAN network? Sure. You know, that network, the LID network was uh, originally it was it was three LID because we talked about, you know, low incidence uh, disabilities, students with deaf blindness, students with the most significant cognitive disabilities. So it was three LID at first and Mary Scott lit that up. 
And then uh, they dropped it because the group was growing that we were talking about. At that point, we started just saying um, it went to low incidence statewide network. TEA asked us to do some things for students with uh, traumatic brain injury. So we kind of covered that at one time. And another time we did a statewide stakeholders group and talked about Down syndrome. And we know that all of these students, what really says who they are is they, they have some needs that they require some really intensive supports. So it's really about the supports that they need. I have used the term interchangeably now between uh, significant cognitive disabilities and complex access needs, but my belief is that students with complex access needs are, are, are students with significant cognitive disabilities. When they are given the appropriate supports that they need, the disability is less significant. That is kind of how it the path has changed. The new grant we're under has allowed us to do a lot more and we partnered with Region 13 and they are just the gurus of getting everything like the little video uh, to look. I mean, they take the thoughts and put it into this wonderful uh, vision that everybody can see. So I have been privileged to work with uh, Jim Gonzalez and the team there. It's been amazing. We also have some great parent videos because I think about, you know, if we want to help students and get the word out so that every we can kind of do this shift that takes place, um, we have to empower parents. As parents, child is born with a disability. The medical community doesn't always give them like this wonderful future view. <laughs> you know, they tell them more about you can expect this and that, and sometimes in a lot of negative terms. Then they come to the educational system and they really sometimes don't have those expectations. A lot of times parents, you know, they're protective of their children. What they want more than anything, as we all do, is to know that, that their child is valued and cared for and safe. But I want to take that to the next level and say, yes, and we want to give them the most that we can and we have to we have to hold high expectations. So um, we have some great parent-to-parent -parent videos where they really talk about helping parents have that outlook. The next videos that are gonna be coming out soon are some administrator videos because no matter how fired up the teacher is, she has to have her an administrator on board. And a lot of times administrators haven't had a lot of experience in working with students with um, the types of needs that our students have. So we're hoping with our administrative series to give them some resources and tools and then uh, really just kind of motivate them to begin changes on their campus. I want to add to um, what Lottie's saying about um, families. Um, I was a special ed supervisor in my district when my daughter was identified with a disability. And I think I was looking for, you know, sitting on both sides of the table, I was looking for um, more hope and more positive hard meetings with my daughter and then I didn't always receive that so you know I think it's important the parent videos that um, that Texas can has is developed really gives families an understanding uh, and hope that working with your team will enhance your child's education and the questions that you may want to ask don't hold back I think uh, sometimes when we're at our meetings families are uh, hesitant to ask questions because they think they they don't sound 
too intelligent. But really, those videos really say, you know, for those families to ask those questions and get answers they want. Because I was always surprised at the lack of knowledge that families had about uh, the IEP, our meetings, what to ask, what's what's my responsibility, what's my legal responsibility. So um, I think some of those videos that uh, Lottie and Texas Can has produced are really going to uh, enhance and change the lives of uh, families. Uh, those are really important. I think for families, it's really critical to understand the whole art process and their education of their child so they can help them at home, at school, in the community. I agree with you, Patrick, that a lot of families who don't understand and and I was just thinking about when Lottie was speaking was that, you know, TEA did their first survey of parents back in 2003. And, and one of the things that came out was most important was they wanted their kids to feel valued, respected and valued, kept yes. coming out louder and louder. And then, and also the, some of the complaints were that during the, the art process, the art meeting, they go through, you know, go too fast. I don't have time to ask questions. Right, and I, and right. I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand what they're telling me, and just could, could we slow the process down? Could we, you know, because I want to understand how I can help my child, and I think what you guys are doing is so important down that road of helping parents understand, you know, right. the process as well as you know the role that they play in their child's education and things they could be doing. Because a lot of times they're, you know, or they're depending on friends or other people. Right. sometimes who's not had positive experiences <laughs> and so it becomes more uh, litigious than what it needs to be so yeah, looking forward you. to the videos and i changed my behavior too as a supervisor after my daughter was identified so i saw both sides of, you know i would tell a family everything's going to be okay but then then when i was sitting on the other side of the table maybe things are not going to be okay so i changed mm -hmm. my behavior based on my experience with my daughter being identified with a disability. So thank you, it's really important. The families feel comfortable, they can ask those questions. Uh, just because you're you know, in a tie or a suit sitting on a table, I want families to be comfortable and, may, and really understand this whole process because this process is a lifelong, I mean, long as you're in education, it's gonna be a lifelong process and you're gonna be adult learning. So uh, great point, thank you very much for saying that. And another thing is that, you know, when we're looking at uh, students and children with, you know, complex needs, those needs are not just needs for school. <laughs> it's not limited to school, you know. I used to tell people, you know, the kid is learning disabled, they're, they're learning disabled, not just in school. They're not making your life musical at school, you know, just because they are, you know, it's just, that's a disability they have and it goes with them to home. And, and that transition of, of skills from school to home is so vital. So that, you know, parents know how, you know, what we found with, with that survey and, and multiple surveys afterwards was, how can I help my child at home? That was the number one and number one questions. That is so important that that teamwork between the teacher and the parents. So that if we, whatever we're doing at school that's successful, we do it the same way at home and vice versa. And, you know, there have been times when I know as a, I've heard teachers say, oh, the parents say he does this at home, but we've never seen him do that. But, you know, it is like, well, you have to look at everything that surrounds that, like what's, how comfortable the child is in that environment, what kind of supports he is given, and then how you can duplicate it so that 
those same things are happen happening in both places. I really believe all things in life come down to relationship, no matter what we're talking about. And so the relationship between the, the teachers and the student, but even, even also the relationship between the teacher and the parents and the student siblings and the grandparents. I mean, really working with the whole team that is um, that circle around the student, that circle of support, those people, the more that relationship is intact and really supported, the better things will be for that student. And it, it takes some time sometimes for, because like when I was junior high, so by the time my students came to me, the parents had had some different experiences. So maybe their learning history with school was a little bit different and with different teachers and they may have come without a lot of trust. And so it was building that relationship and helping always setting expectations. This is what's gonna happen in the class. This is what we're doing today. This is what happened today. This was a high point of the day, journaling back and forth on it uh, daily with parents. All of these kinds of things, I think we talk about too in our monthly instructional guides about you know, building that relationship, supporting parents and Letting, um, letting them know exactly what's being done in the classroom and how it's being done and celebrating small successes. I think it's good for everybody when you're looking at uh, data, regardless, like you have to take data, but it's those little, little increases that sometimes mean so much. So you've been working on something and working on something and ah, that moment happens and you just have to celebrate with as many people on the team as you can. Sometimes we've had small little successes and sometimes we have had like, oh my gosh, who knew? I didn't see that coming. I miss that part of being um, in that classroom environment and that part of that team, but I'm excited about what I'm able to do now. And I just want to help other teachers, you know, be able, be empowered to work with parents and to support their students. Lotta, you, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, monthly instructional guides. Can you uh, discuss those with us? When I first came to the classroom, not knowing anything really, I had a hard time being a boss to paraprofessionals. I didn't know, especially since I was coming into um, the classroom I came into, I think there were two or three pairs in the classroom already who had been there, like they had been with this group of students a lot longer than any teacher had since I came to junior high because at that time we were having a lot of turnover with teachers. So trying to know how to step up and guide and lead my paraprofessional team was difficult for me. And so um, I started like trying to write myself notes about what I was supposed to be doing every month. And one of the uh, first things that I did was I created a classroom manual because uh, I'm not a person that really feels comfortable with confrontation. So I put all our classroom rules for my paraprofessionals in a classroom manual. And that helped me like, oh, you know, look, this is, this is our class rule book. And so it's all written in there. And I spelled everything out and we talked about, you know, about different things with my expectations for how the students would be treated. Um, just everything was in there. And uh, that was the beginning of the monthly instructional guides. And then they kind of built from there as at that time, working in a self-contained classroom, there's just so many things 
uh, that you have to coordinate, coordinating those things. And I was in the classroom when, uh, you know, the first alternate assessments came out. So in the beginning, we were doing locally developed alternate assessments, which really meant the teacher was creating something. And then we had tax alt. And as we moved through all of those, I just, I learned a lot along the way, but I felt like as the alternate assessment became more standardized, we kind of focused on that assessment a lot. And it's like, hey, don't forget, we've got to be instructing all year before we assess our students. So how can we make all these pieces come together so that uh, we're providing you know, effective assessment, everything's aligned with the general curriculum and with the IEP and just all the different pieces. So that's why that was the thinking behind the monthly instructional guides, just trying to help teachers feel a little more comfortable with the process because you start school and then it's like in the blink of an eye, it is winter break and then, oh, it's the end of school. <laughs> so all those expectations, unless you have a plan, all those expectations at the very beginning sometimes um, the best laid plans, as we say, you know, the best laid plans don't always work out. So you just have to break it down into smaller goals and then it's more manageable. Yeah, I love the monthly guide, how it talks about, it almost starts the year out and gets them on, like, it's like giving them some uh, a foundation or footing, if you will. Like, hey, this isn't everything you'll do, but look, when you start the year in August, you want to review the folders, right? You want to know, hey, in my school, do we have an established curriculum? Is this something that I need to address more or less? Is this, you know, and so it's almost like an outline or a blueprint for success. So when I went through that month by month, I thought, wow, because I was a life skills teacher. I was a PPCD teacher. And I thought, where was this when I was teaching? <laughs> right. So I definitely love that. It has come a long way and a lot of our resources have because now we're really focusing on our students being included in the general aid classroom and that I can't wait for you to see the administrator videos because we really we really talk about it uh, in depth and um, next in September we'll have um, an online inclusion coaching guide and we'll have a series of courses about how students with significant cognitive disabilities can be part of the general ed classroom because all the research supports inclusion, uh, even inclusion of students with very severe disabilities. And there hasn't been in the last 40 years been any research that says it's better to segregate students with significant cognitive disabilities in a room down at the way into the hall or in a portable at the corner of uh, the school property. We actually, with our materials that are going to be coming out, we had a pilot this year with, uh, I have to give a shout out to Hawkins Elementary on El, pa El Paso because they piloted our materials. The environment was not nice, but they got through all the COVID kinds of things that were going on in the pandemic when El Paso was really a hot spot. And they just, they just killed it. They were able to begin uh, transitioning two students into the general ed classroom. And one of the things that they talked about is the change in their students' personalities when they were with their peers. Just all the things, the increase in their verbal output, all different kinds of positive things happen. And the kids in those in the class that they were transitioning into also had a lot of great things that came about. 
and it, that just kind of goes back to why I do what I do. And it's because I had some relationships with some diverse diverse kids that had different needs than I did. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And so I love that we can teach that diversity is okay and that we support each other in different ways. Everybody brings something to the table. Everybody brings something to the table. So I can't wait for this series to go live. TEA is reviewing our stuff right now. And my hope is that it will all be published in September. Jump in, guys. Don't be shy. I wanted to come back to something, if that's okay. Lottie, you've talked a lot about relationships. I completely agree with you. My background is as a diagnostician, and that was a very important thing for me in my arts is I always wanted to have some kind of connection with my parents because I knew that we were talking about very personal things. And, and then uh, you also men mentioned, Patrick, um, that you wanted more positive art meetings. And so I know a part of that is you know, in the technical piece, making sure we use vocabulary that's understood, you know, we, we all understand that as professionals, but when we think about talking about schools, um, going into a school, maybe with a new principal who's going to be running arts, what are some things, you know, not only as working in a school district, but also as a parent of a child with special needs, would you say helps create that positive ARD meeting? You know, what, what concrete ideas could we give a principal to say, this is what a positive meeting feels like for me. I think the beginning, it's just, you know, is to talk about the strengths of the child, you know, the, the student, just talk about strengths and the, and what their unique gifts are and their abilities to start out with that. You know, sometimes the art meeting is a deficit based model. You know, you're talking about their needs and I'm, we have to talk about their needs. I understand that, but try to be more positive in the sense of, what are their unique abilities? What do they like to do? What are their preferences? What are their interests? Um, what are their strengths? And then you get to the needs. I, I know that. Uh, I think that's important. I think what Lottie mentioned is this, especially for students with complex needs, is this teamwork, this effective teams, because most of our students have uh, maybe a physical therapist, a speech and language person, uh, occupational therapist, this team is so critical. I think El Paso is doing a great job of putting this team together of saying, okay, this is the student we have. Let's work together to build some common goals some common objectives. Not that the, you know, the speech therapist does her thing or his thing and then the, somebody else does kind of episodic, but really putting together an effective team by saying, okay, let's meet, let's talk about specific goals and objectives objectives, long-term goals, objectives, maybe not just for this year, but for the next couple of years so that we can be moving in a direction. And with the family's input, you know, as we ask the family, what is your vision for your child? What are your dreams and hopes? And then including the student, you know, as you self-determination, the I am determined, um, some of their work is to bring everybody in. It says, where do you want to go with this? It's come up. I've done a lot of person-centered planning with families. So, you know, what are, what are your relationships? What's the circle of friendships? So begin to build that and use the art meeting as a kind of a vehicle to build those tools and those nuances to build that into the whole IEP process. I think that's going to give our students much more a dream and a hope for the future because you're looking at not just the, this year, but a, you know the future. So that's what I think will be much fun. And El Paso has done a great job as I read the notes and they're doing a great job at, uh, with that. 
I have to I second what Patrick said. Um, Cheryl Jorgensen has done a lot of work with us. And I mean, so inspiring. And we just, you know, I, I want to be like a sponge around her because the things she says and the research and that she shares. But one of the things that she talks about is that leading with student strengths. And she she went said that like, how would how would we want to be introduced? Like, do you want to introduce? This is Lottie and the, you know, she struggles with this and this and this and, you know, in the past she has failed, you know, whatever, but it's no, nobody wants to come into a meeting and be introduced in that way. And it does a lot to foster a relationship with parents when we use that kind of the strength base, you know, these are his interests. These are some things that he brings that uh, are really important to our class and anytime, you know what? I have found parents love to see their student with other students. It's life-changing uh, when we can share how things are happening in a classroom with their gen ed peers. The other thing I think about an IEP is students should be involved in their ARG meeting. They should put together a presentation. They should be in that meeting uh, and participate to the maximum extent possible. And know that this meeting is about them and everybody at the table sees the student that who we are making decisions, life-changing decisions for. I've often thought when in a self-contained classroom, um, and especially after I, when I came to the service center, you know, after leaving a self-contained classroom, like you never really know in a self-contained classroom if you're doing a good job because you don't get an opportunity to see others doing what you do. And so then when I came to the service center and I went out and visited um, other schools, it's like, okay, let's, who's doing the same kind of thing? But one of the things I noticed is a lot of times um, we know that sometimes students with significant cognitive disability need a lot of repetition to learn a task. But I would see teachers asking students to do things with a lot of repetition without them ever explaining why learning this task is important or sharing with them their uh, the data like, look, yesterday you were able to do this this many times or for this long and maybe creating that visual graph to share with the student and connecting what they're learning to some real life outcome. It's we all <laughs> we all need that. And it makes sense that we should also be doing it for students with significant cognitive disabilities because most often our students with significant cognitive disabilities uh, understand uh, so much more than they're able really to express and show. So just by starting, starting early on, their participation in the ARD, if we start from the very beginning, by the time they're in high school, it will look very different. And that's why I think that it's important as, as early as possible, um, having students be with their peers in those general ed settings, hearing that great content information from the general ed teachers and being supported in all their needs by that special ed teacher. So that's where I would like to see things move to uh, as we go forward. And I know, I, I know um, administrators are in schools, they're gonna be, how is that even possible? But, uh, you know, you take a step and then you, you, 
look at it and you revise and you add in supports or whatever. And that's kind of what our El Paso team did. Um, they started, in, they were remote when they decided they're going to start introducing the student to the rest of the gen ed class. And then that just led, it was so much more successful when they were able to be meet their peers and be with their peers. And it even made a difference, like a parent reported uh, to the principal, like, wow, what a difference. His whole outlook, his whole, um, you know, the way he behaves at home has changed so much. It's just a matter of like taking that initial step, beginning the journey, and we'll, we'll get better as we go. That's, that's just part of it. We'll start and we'll get better as we go as we go. But I know in all of my career, for so long, it seemed like we, we kept repeat doing the same things, doing the same things like, okay, enough, we need to change this. And so I'm hoping that our resources will help, help people begin to make those changes. Well, I just want to say that, you know, you're speaking so many of my different love languages here, strength focused, person centered. I mean, it's this idea, you know, as, a, as an LPC, as a counselor for years, you know, I was a solution focused person. I was and, and even as a special ed director, you know, I realized that, you know, it, it, whether I was overseeing self-contained classrooms when I wish they were any more inclusive and such, that the adults in these systems are, are doing what they think they're being asked to do, which is, hey, you know, find the weaknesses and try to make them better. And what I love hearing Patrick saying from TEA's perspective, I want our listeners to hear this. The Texas Education Agency is saying, look for the strengths. We don't have to have a deficit model of education. It's, it, we, can, we can reverse order how we go about doing this thing. And that costs you absolutely nothing to change. It literally is easy as saying, hey, today, when you go into that classroom and you're making that little tally chart, instead of looking for all the things that kid does wrong throughout the day, start marking the things you see right. And then all of a sudden, a teacher says, wow, that kid's behavior has improved so much last week. And really, has that child's behavior improved or has that child's? Or are you just looking for what you are going to find, which is what you've been asked to look for. And that is strengths versus weaknesses, positives versus negatives, right? And so I love, Patrick, that you shared that. And and I, I just love that this network really is striking this um, kind of approach because I feel like, you know, in design thinking, we talk a lot, a lot about designing to the edges. We want to develop a universal principle at the edges, at the margins, because you can never move a system from the center out right? Or from the top down. You have to kind of go out to the edges, to the fringes, find those extreme users and figure out what would move the system in a better way for these end users, right? Our students with complex needs. Knowing that if we hit it, if we hit this on the mark, it's going to be good for all students because this is the model that could change Texas education for every student to where all kids, that trajectory is going up, up, up when we find their strengths, when we help them understand their strengths, and we redefine this thing we call education in Texas. So I, I'm, I'm super excited here. I know you can hear it in my voice. I don't mean to go down these rabbit paths, but I'll tell you, that's exciting. I have a question, though. I know we talked about the resources and like the, the month by month kind of guidebook. And then we talked about some videos. And then I see on the Texas Complex Access Network website, courses 
Can, can you talk a little bit about the courses and what, what exactly that is? Well, Patrick, you want me to take this one? Are you in the Yeah, conference? sure. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lonnie. Um, we have two courses, and I know uh, Patrick says this all the time, that we, uh, we really feel every teacher working with students with complex access needs should take. And the first one is uh, building a foundation for students with significant cognitive disabilities. And the second one is our, our IEP rigor course. Um, so really the guidance, both of them have rubrics with them. Um, they are meant to help teachers continuously get better. And so we did a cohort with each one where teachers moved through and then they were coached by ESE specialists. And then we came back and we used the rubric again to see where they might have improved it at. And really happy with those courses. The Building a Foundation course uh, talks about five quality indicators. So I hope I can remember them all. Uh, the first one is alignment uh, with the standards, effective teams, uh, communication, differentiation, and I left out one. Classroom climate. Classroom climate. So really all of our, everything that we do kind of aligns underneath one of those indicators. And so we break it down in, in the building a foundation course. And uh, we first start with the evidence of why it's important. And then we give examples of what it looks like. And so we have all, all sorts of examples in there. And then they can, they do the rubric on themselves and see where does their practice fall uh, along the lines of best practice. And uh, it moves all the way through on each one. Administrators don't always know how to support uh, their teachers of students with significant cognitive disability. They don't know what to look for in the classes when they do those walkthroughs. So we, um, we put together that tool. And the IEP quality and rigor training, everything that we outline in the rubric could be applied to any student with an IEP, but it's just different in the complexity and what would be required, the supports that be, should be added in and helping teachers to not be afraid to make instruction a little more rigorous. Like sometimes I'm, when I was back in the classroom, no one gave me that guidance. Uh, we had a program for IEPs where you kind of scrolled and clicked. And I thought, mm, I know we can get this done. Mm, I know we can get this done. It wasn't as thoughtful and um, data-based decisions as we know are needed now. And so helping students, helping teachers think about being a little bit more rigorous in their expectations and setting those goals. And also what a good plaque looks like it, you know, it should be pretty extensive for a student with uh, significant cognitive disabilities. So in the IEP course, there's, um, there's a wonderful PLAF, and then there's a not so great PLAF. And then that course moves them through, they, they really need their own, uh, an IEP they have created in front of them. So as they move through, they look at their IEP and see if they have evidence of each different component within their IEP. Those are, I think, our two, um, you know, heavy hitters, I'd say. We have some other courses that are also amazing. Um, let's see, we have the Building an Authentic Academic Response. And that course came about because with, with the Star Alt 2, 
you know, there's an exemption for no authentic academic response. But one of the things that I noticed was that teachers, uh, students were excluded from that assessment because there was no authentic academic response. And that was just carried over year after year after year. And the truth is that, you know, that's our job to build an authentic academic response. We, we can't just say, nope, don't, doesn't have one. And so that course is about how you build an authentic academic response, the kinds of things that you need to be aware of. And I love that course. And I could talk all day just about that course, but it, it's a, it is an important, a very important course. We have the three C's of behavior management, which is connection, communication, and choices. Uh, so for, for our population, when you have those, you'll see behavior go down. So if you have a connection with the student, if the student has a way to communicate and the student has a way to make choices and you provide a lot of choices to empower the student, you will see much better behavior than a student that doesn't have that. So I like that course as well. We have teaching literacy to students with significant cognitive disability. This is a facilitated course. So as teachers move through, they get feedback. Um, they have to do some uploads. They have to do some applications throughout that course. And that was uh, a course that we've kind of updated. Uh, originally, we, um, it was made when we had the LID Network and Car Dr. Karen Erickson helped us with the material for that. We also have Star Alt 2 before, during, and after, and that was just because, uh, like I said earlier, that emphasis was on the test. <laughs> it's like, okay, but what are you doing before the test? And then what are you doing during the test? And then how are you using those test results to make some changes in the way you're instructing? And so um, that course will be updated some this year, and I'm excited about working with TA on that one. We also have, and this would, was originally um, built the Down syndrome course, the evidence-based practices for the education of students with Down syndrome. They're just great practices, I will be honest with you. The things that we talk about are good for any students, uh, whether they have an IEP or not. They're just some great supports. We started that, uh, we did a statewide stakeholder meeting with parents of children with Down syndrome and talked about what they'd like to see and what they wanted. and. Um, that was back in the LID network. And then we've kind of improved on the courses we've gone through. We have some exceptional videos within this course that I just wish everybody could watch them. They may at some time also live on our webpage because it's like, oh, they're buried in the course. I want everybody to see them. The other one right now we have is Beyond Time and Money Teaching Mathematics. It's a good course. Um, and it, all, I have to say all of our courses, we try to link to the other networks because the autism network also has a math course that I really love. So I'm kind of torn between the two. Um, I think that's all that we have currently. And then we're coming out with the fundamentals of inclusive education, presuming competence, transitioning a student from self-contained to the general uh, education classroom, supports for participation, uh, UDL, our universal design for learning, creating and sustaining peer networks, coaching and team meeting basics, uh, that's for helping the team get started, and accessible instructional materials. Cheryl Jorgensen worked with us in, in creating the content for all of those, and they're, they're going to be amazing. I can't wait until they are up. Each one has a fidelity checklist and a guide for implementation. So when we coached our pilot team, 
Cheryl Jorgensen partnered with us on that. And as we went through, we started by doing the course and the fidelity checklist at, as a baseline measurement for the team. And then they looked to the guide to implementation and they picked action items. And we kind of moved forward that way. And then at the end of the project, um, we came back and did those fidelity checklist again to, to see where our, you know, how much they had grown. And it was, it was nice to see the changes that we saw. And um, we got some great, we interviewed the team. We got some great video snippets. And we also got some great coaching things from Cheryl that are, some of them are interspersed in courses and some are in our, will be on a, our online coaching guide and we'll have a series that we'll build on or, or we're hoping to build on through the years called, and I hope I can say this because my mouth is feeling kind of dry, but it's excerpts from the experts through ah. <laughs> that series. So as we move forward, you know, having different researchers and things share things with us. Looking at the looking at the website, I mean, it looks like, I mean, I know the focus of our statewide technical assistance networks are, you know, resources, vetted uh, courses, professional development, professional learning, things like that for our Texas educators, right? Not just our special ed teachers, but our general ed teachers. And even like you had mentioned, our our administrators, our principals, our, that we want to make sure we all have this baseline understanding of this mm -hmm. information so that when we come together, like Patrick said, as a team, we all know, hey, this is my role, this is your role, but we work in this big comprehensive process. And so I love that you have kind of the parent videos there. So you have information there for parents as well. And maybe teachers and educators, if they have more access or, or they think to go to these resources more, they share those with parents. And, but the way you, you know, I look at the, the courses that you've built out. I don't know if I'm more excited about the courses that are currently available or the ones that are in the can, right. That are ready to kind of drop. And so I, I feel like you're hitting on some major themes and topics. The idea of inclusion, it's so easy to gloss over that and think, well, we've been doing inclusion for how long? Well, you can't do inclusion, right? Inclusion is right. mindset. It's a process. It's what a child experiences when they enter a building, you know? And so I love that we're circling back to the fundamentals. Like we're not making assumptions here that everyone just knows what inclusion is. And, and then that the idea of fostering peer relationships and just just some great resources here. So I don't know where I was going with that, Pam. Stop me, please. Yeah. I just keep going. Patrick, jump in. Good points, John. But I think one thing we want to look at too is that we're not looking at just social inclusion in terms of proximity for a student um, being in a general education classroom. But what we're finding from research, and as I read more research, as a student is in the general education classroom and they're learning uh, adaptive books, learning a math skill, from a teacher, a co-teaching in the classroom, uh, from their peers, what they're, what they're learning is skills that it seems like from what the early research says that those skills that they're learning in those classrooms facilitate higher level expectations and capacity as they move on to other skills. So it's not just that, yeah, that's great. If you look, if the administrator opens the door, you see a student with complex needs in that classroom, that student is really learning in that classroom. So those skills that they're learning in that sixth grade math class for that period of 45 minutes to an hour is going to facilitate higher capacity in that student as they learn other skills for the next years that they're in, in school. So it's not just, it looks good and it feels good, John. It's going to 
make a difference. And that's what the research is telling us is if we segregate students, they're not, their capacity is gonna be limited. And that's it, that whole presumed competence. But if we develop and create more inclusive classrooms for our students with complex needs, they're going to learn more and we're gonna have better outcomes as we move on. They're gonna learn more skills. They're gonna have higher capacity, just like we want for all students in education. So we're gonna have better outcomes in with the star all two or IEP measuring IEP monitoring progress, we're gonna see better outcomes. That's why inclusion is so important, not just the social aspect of it. You know, Patrick, Absolutely. when we first started talking about inclusion, we would hear people say, I do inclusion. My students um, eat lunch with their peers or they go to some extracurricular activity. Right. I'm not extracurricular, but like um, art or, you know, one of the elective. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not uh, what we're talking about is authentic inclusion. So the students are in the classroom. They are with their peers. I, I love seeing students side by side with peers and not with a, a paraprofessional right beside them, but having some natural peer supports built in. And they're working a lesson that is the same. It may be reduced in depth, breadth, or complexity, but it's related to what everybody else is learning. And so the team has met in advance and they've talked about what the lesson's going to be. And we're, we've looked for connections to that, um, that lesson for our students. We've looked at the kind of supports they'll need to be able to respond to questions or participate in groups and built those things in. And when we're able to do that, um, it is a beautiful thing. <laughs> so it, it, like I said, it is a lot of work, but we have to start by really having these important conversations. Yeah, I agree with you. I, you know, we used to say, if you want to teach a kid to read, you cannot put them in a room with bad readers. <laughs> if you never hear good reading, you never know. Right, right. You know, it's the same thing. If you want students to learn, you got to put them where there's rigorous and complex learning occurring and that's going to be in your DNA classroom and they and truly they will learn they will pick up you know we started I'm just going to date myself we just started long ago with inclusion and we moved some students that were just resource students that I kept thinking you know I think these kids can be better in a gen ed setting and everyone was like you, you I'm not sure Pam I was like well we got nothing to lose because <laughs> it's kind of like we know what we have here but we have nothing to lose and we, you know, and the, the biggest concern was math, you know, it was algebra, we were starting algebra with junior high campus and, and they thrived. Now these are students who, who couldn't divide, mm -hmm. but they didn't need to know how to divide because everything they were using were calculators or uh, manipulatives. They were able to use both manipulatives and calculators to do the work that their gen ed peers were doing. And they were more successful than any of us thought. But, you know, it was just that belief in Let's give them a chance. Let's let's see what they can do because this is not the right environment for them. And I think that's kind of what I'm hearing is that we need to give kids a chance, give them the opportunity to prove to prove us wrong. Really, you know, prove the adults wrong. Dangerous assumption, right? We need yeah, sure. to human intelligence. We need to look at every kid as being filled with potential, and then from there, let's see what they show us. You know, I, I right. strongly believe. You know, education should be the mechanism by which adults help kids realize their potentials. It's how do we get out of the way 
enough and facilitate and coach and whatever the word of the month is enough to ensure they have the, we've created the conditions that alongside their peers with the curriculum, with the, the, the blessing of technology, that kids are able to somehow work out life hacks, right? And, and get around these struggles, not struggle less, maybe struggle five times more, but have the perseverance and the skill set to do it because they're interested in their content. They have peers sitting beside them that are encouraging them. And then at the end of the day, what Pam is so passionate about is, right, that employability, that what is life after school, that we're not graduating kids to the couch, that these kids that have come into a system alongside their peers, exit a system alongside their peers, and then go to work in a system alongside their peers. You know, to me, it makes perfect sense. I know logistics are always difficult. Change is always messy. But man, in Texas, Texas can, I think, is changing, right, the direction, the script, how we're going about working with our with our kids with complex needs. And I just am so thankful y'all came on with us today. I know we had a hard time getting the schedule all lined up, but this, this is going to be fabulous. I can't wait to get it out so our listeners, you know, I think we need to get people to the website. We need to get people to the resources. Pam? Yes, I, I, John, I agree with you. I'd like to thank Lottie and Patrick for coming on with us as well. It was worth it. The wait was, thank you. It was definitely worth the wait. And we're glad you were able to be with us and share all the resources. And Lottie, you want to give a shout out to your website for us? Yes, it is txcan.ta.texas.gov. There is one other resource we didn't talk about, but if um, your listeners would like to look at it, it is our research summary and where we have current research articles and we kind of um, give a little overview of their articles. And then there is a, there's a call to action for each one for Texas educators. So um, we have some great things on there and it's something that we will continue to update as more and more research comes to us. Absolutely. Well, on behalf of SPED Talk, and all of the ESCs that collaborate in the liaison project. We are just so blessed and thankful to have y'all on. Uh, it's exciting to see this kind of just quality information and resources coming out of our technical assistance networks. And Texas CAN has definitely set us a high standard. John, tell everyone how they can continue to elevate the conversation about special education in Texas. You got it, Pam. They can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SpedTalk2020. Because in these disconnected times, connecting with others has never been so important. Now more than ever, it takes courage to create culture and kindness to keep us connected. If you enjoyed this episode of SpedTalk, be sure to share it with a friend because information should always flow through us, not to us. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, and we need your help sharing the amazing transformation occurring in special education. Together, we can change the trajectory of learning opportunities in Texas for students with disabilities. If you have ideas, information, or resources that you think we should share on an upcoming episode of SPED Talk, let us know at SPED Talk 2020 on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And be sure to like our page while you're there. Oh yeah, and if you get a chance, please consider giving us a positive review on the podcast platform that you listen to SPED Talk. Living in the moment and the moment is the future.